So if you're following along, you can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're moving through the book of Corinthians. I'm going to read the passage. It's a short passage this morning, just verses 17 to 24. That's 1 Corinthians. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's a New Testament book. You can look in the front of the Bible, um, and it'll list all the books. But uh, the Bible isn't like one book, even though it's called the Holy Bible, which is German for book. It's, it's, it's a library of uh, 66 books. So 1 Corinthians is a book written to the Corinthians. It's the first of two letters. That's why if you just look up one or 1 Corinthians, look for the big numbers. That's a chapter. If you go to the little numbers, those are the verses, and you start at 17. It's just a way to codify the Bible so that you can actually find things instead of saying, somewhere in this book, I think God says this. You can actually look look it up. So 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24, it's also going to be on the overhead to follow along. This is Paul inspired by the Spirit, writing to the Corinthians. He says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. And this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called, meaning when he became a Christian, then he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, then he shouldn't be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith, in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. And similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So if you've been tracking with our series, all of chapter 7 is instructions related to relationship status. Widowed, never married, married um, to a fellow Christian, married to an unbeliever, and it's framed with this question of what does it mean to be spiritual? Now that I'm a Christian and I find myself in this relationship status, I'm married to a non-believer, what am I supposed to do? How do I correct that? And those questions come from a good place because the gospel has implications. The gospel is the bottom line good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news, the bottom line good news that Jesus opens up for anybody, which is because of the incarnation of the Son of God, manger, and because of the cross, the death of the Son of God on our behalf, and the resurrection, the crown, the resurrection of the Son of God to conquer and defeat the powers of sin and death, a new way of living is opened up. And so when we become Christians, we're not simply adopting like a belief system or entering into a new sociological phenomenon. We're actually moving into a new way of being human, of walking with God and being redeemed for a purpose in this life and for eternal joy with God forever. So it's very natural to say, okay, now that I've become a Christian, what am I supposed to do? How do I, what am I supposed to change? And for the Corinthians, they're suspicious that there are certain circumstances that they're concerned will either inhibit their new life in Christ or it's going to contaminate it 
or maybe even negate the possibility of even being a legitimate, real Christian to begin with. Can I be a Christian? Can I be a spiritual Christian and be married to an unbeliever? Can I be a spiritual Christian if I'm single and I don't have kids and a family? Can I be a spiritual Christian if um, I'm married at all? Like, is that going to run interference? Maybe I should just like divorce and live for the glory of God alone. I should be married to God and no one else. What needs to change? And these suspicions that these new Christians were um, grappling with, they come from the fact that in their culture, most of them are not Jews. They are Gentiles, they're Romans, knee-high to a grasshopper, steeped in Roman culture, which is uh, explicitly and reinforced in every way hierarchical, that there was an obsession in Roman culture with hierarchy and to assign value and destiny and purpose based on where you are in that hierarchy. And that hierarchy was formed from social factors and relational factors and economic factors and ethnic factors. And across all these stratas, Rome had a system to say, this person's higher, this person's lower. And the further you get up, in a sense, the more aligned you are with um, the gods or the fullness of your humanity. So much so that the person at the top, the emperor, transcends humanity, and they become like a god. And so that's why you read different um, Roman emperors saying, you can believe in whatever kind of god you want to believe in, you just have to add worship of me to the mix. And that's why Christians get burned at the stake, fed to lions, um, tortured uh, by emperors like Nero, because, not because they're bad people or causing insurrection, but because, and not even that not even because they're worshiping Jesus. It's that they're saying, Jesus alone is Lord. I will not bow the knee to Caesar. Caesar's but a man. They wouldn't recognize the divinity of the emperor. And that leads to a lot of trouble. You can read about that in the book of Acts and history books. This hierarchy doesn't just exist in the Roman world. It exists in the Jewish one as well. To be ethnically Jewish at this time was seen to be a true Israelite. People could convert to Judaism, but because they weren't a seed of Abraham, they weren't ethnically Jewish, they weren't really sons and daughters of the promise. And so there was a place in the temple where Gentiles could come to worship, but it was on an outer court. Jews were allowed into an innermost place. They were literally allowed to be closer to God. Gentiles could believe in God, but they had to worship at a distance because the ethnic Jews are... The, um, are the true legitimate seed of Abraham. So as Corinthians become Christian, they're wrestling through what needs to change. And because Rome was so image conscious and so status driven, that what the Corinthians default to is, well, what are the externals in my life that need to change? So that I can live in harmony with what God wants and I can show other people other Christians and other non-believers, how spiritual I am. What does spirituality, a deep walk with God, look like? And that's what they're obsessed with. Now, I would argue because we live in a very image-conscious time, a very status-conscious culture, what we find in this passage is really, really instructive for us. And yet it's a passage that we can read over 
and not necessarily see all the ways it connects to our lives, but it's actually really powerful because it does a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to the question, well, now that I'm a Christian, what needs to change about my life? So remember that throughout the chapter, it's going to continue here, but even preceding this, Paul is hammering home one principle. Remain where you are. You're married to an unbeliever? Remain where you are. You're widowed? Remain where you are. You're single? Remain where you are. Redeem where you are. God has placed you in that um, situation. And this is something that he reiterates again in verse 17. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. And this is the rule I lay down for all the churches. This is a whole chapter on relationships, and a lot of it having to do with marriage and singleness. But then Paul introduces two examples, two teaching points, that probably for us, we just are like, this is a record-scratching moment, where we're like, I'm not sure how one flows from the other. Because he introduces circumcision and slavery in this discussion around staying where you are, living as you are. He says, was a man already circumcised when he was called? Then he should not become uncircumcised. Historical fact, if you were circumcised, there was a Roman surgery that you could undertake to become uncircumcised. Do not Google it. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? You should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts. Each person, person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith, in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. And similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves to human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them. Circumcision and slavery. Why is Paul bringing up these um, extended teaching points to Christians to make the point that you should stay faithful in the situations that you're in. And if we slow down and consider it, it's actually really, really brilliant. Because these are two markers of status and importance that some, uh, that many people were, were um, obsessed with saying, this defines me as a person. This is the most important thing as a person. So the first is circumcision. And this was to a Jewish person the sign of religious and ethnic status. This was the way that men could say, see, we are God's chosen people. My body is literally marked. It is literally sealed as being God's special covenant people, which means if you were Jewish, this was a source of great pride because you are in an elevated position above the filthy pagans. But if you weren't Jewish, What's it a source of? If you are a Gentile who is not circumcised and you come to faith, what might this be a source of? Ridicule, um, shame, embarrassment. A sense that, I mean, yeah, I know God loves me, but I'm very clearly 
sort of second-class citizen in God's family. I'm inferior as a Gentile because I'm not, I'm not a Jewish believer in the Jewish Messiah. I've been grafted in. So I'm kind of like, I've jumped on the bandwagon. So God loves me. That's awesome. I'm saved. But in the value of the community, I take a diminished um, status. Maybe there's even temptation to say, well, I'm not really a full or legitimate or real Christian because I'm not marked in the same way that my believing Jewish brothers are. Now, next you have slavery. Being a slave meant you were the lowest on the status hierarchy in Roman culture. And we're not going to do a deep dive into slavery, but what's important to know is that slavery was the ancient, um, it's a bit of a simplification, but it's an ancient equivalent of the welfare system. Most people sold themselves into slavery in order to not starve to death. Um, Although prisoners of war could be used as slaves, slavery was ubiquitous at any given point at a low end. 25%, but probably more realistically, a third of every single citizen in Rome was a slave. And being a slave didn't mean being um, a chattel slave like we think of in uh, America's uh, dark, terrible past with slavery. Um, It was a bit um, slightly more humane in the sense that it was like indentured servitude. You would sell yourself, if the strong family was in trouble, they would sell themselves to the Marsland family for 10 years and say, will you keep us alive? Will you feed us? We will be your servants or slaves. And yes, you will take us on as property, but I will pay off that debt within 10 years of work for you, and then we can be freed again. And so there were slaves that were terribly abused by their um, masters in a Roman context, and there were other slaves that were rose to tremendous prominence. There were some slaves that owned a network of slaves underneath them. They were entrusted. They were um, some slaves. Slaves were used as teachers uh, to provide what we would think of today as like homeschooling, advanced education for the nobility's children. So there was a wide uh, range of possibilities for slaves, but it didn't matter at the end of the day because if you were a slave, you were a slave, and no one really wanted to be a slave because that had limitations on your freedom. So everyone sought to purchase their freedom through hard work and paying off the debt. So if you were a freed person, if you weren't a slave in Rome, that was a source of status. Because even though you weren't in the top of the pecking order, there was definitely a class of people underneath you. And you could pray, God, thank you so much that I'm not a slave, that I'm a freed person. It was a source of comfort and pride. But if you came to believe if you turned your faith over to Christ and you were a slave, you can imagine that this would have, this could lead to a deep source of insecurity. I guess I'm saved. I guess God loves me, but I'm just a slave. Um, there's shame there. There's ridicule. There's deep insecurity. And it's probably not too much of a stretch of our imagination to realize, well, I mean, I'm glad God has saved me. Uh, but if I kind of imagine the family of God, I'm sort of at the, I'm at the kids' table. And um, I'll, I'll just kind of wait for heaven, I guess, or Jesus to come back, because what can God do with a slave? And so already maybe we're starting to see how this connects to some of our lives, because I've met a lot of people in my life who have said, 
oh, I'm a Christian. I know God loves me and stuff, but I don't know. I'm just blank. I, I don't have enough. You fill in the blank. Knowledge, uh, money, experience. I'm just a teenager. Uh, I just, I'm a blue-collar worker. Uh, I'm just a woman. I'm just, I'm in my retirement years, and my des- best days are behind me as I see it. I'm just kind of waiting for heaven. See, one status can have a profound shaping impact on how we view ourselves, how we view God, and how we actually engage with the world. What's the point of what Paul is saying through this, these extreme examples of circumcision and slavery? Well, you, know, you tell me, what does Paul say to people who are circumcised and are using that as a way to say, oh, sweet, like I'm like a little bit up on the spiritual status chart? Or to people who are not circumcised and to see that as a source of, oh, I'm Lord. What does he say to them? Doesn't matter. Circumcised? Doesn't matter. That's not offensive to us. That's deeply offensive to a Jewish person. That's the identity marker for you as a Jewish person. Paul's like, ah, that's, that's come and gone. That doesn't matter anymore. What does he say matters? Obeying God's commands. Being devoted to God. The external marking doesn't matter because he's going to say it in a different book that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been marked and set out as Christ. And that has happened at a spiritual level. You have a circumcision of the heart where now you are devoted to God. So if your external reality, your external reality has no bearing on that, it doesn't matter. He just hand waves it away. That's crazy. So the people who are carrying insecurity are like, you don't need to be insecure. God is in your life. He's using you. So there's a lowering of those who would see it as a source of pride. There's a raising up of those who would say, well, that kind of puts me, um, these people have a leg up on me. And maybe are tempted towards shame, a lower view of who they are, what they can do. Paul says, no, you come up, you guys come down. Then he says to the slaves, what is, what is his message to whether you are in a slave uh, status or a free person status? What does he say? doesn't matter. Inconsequential, as it relates to God being involved in your life. I mean, there's obviously consequences of being a slave in terms of Roman legal system, but Paul says it actually doesn't matter, because if you are a slave in the eyes of the world, you've stayed a slave, but now you're a slave to Jesus. So your master is now Jesus, and you're going to learn as you devote yourself to him You're not going to have to worry about mistreatment. You're not going to have to worry about um, being taken advantage of. He is faithful and he is good. And you just need to have a paradigm shift. Now you start serving that person as a way to honor God. And if you're free, don't be like, oh, sweet, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Like that gives me a leg up on my slave Christian brother or sister over here. No, it doesn't. Because if you're free, you've now been bought by Jesus. Now you're a slave to him. So there's an equalization. If you're a slave and you think the standing means that kind of like I suck and I'm worthless and I'm not important, nope. You have you now have Jesus as your Lord and King. You are important. Oh, I'm free. So I'm free. I'm I'm autonomous. I'm glad God's in my life, but now I get to do what I want. No, you're a slave to Christ. In Christ, there are no hierarchies of value with respect to personhood. 
your external status does not impact your ability to walk with God. And notice when Paul is addressing these people, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free, how does he end the passage? He calls them what? You see it? Brothers and sisters. Because you're a family now. You have to see each other as such. That is a huge paradigm shift for them to understand because a family has a hierarchy of authority, but it doesn't have, a, in a sense, a hierarchy of importance. Everyone is valued in a family, or they should be. In Galatians 3, he will expand on this. He says, in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you are baptized into Christ, and you've clothed yourself with Christ. And so there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're legitimate, even if you're not circumcised, and you are heirs according to the promise. You have an inheritance coming your way, and it doesn't, it's not dependent on your social standing. You are in Christ. There's a great leveling that happens when we turn our lives over to Christ. He says, you are all one. You're all, in a sense, in the same boat. You are all adopted. You are all forgiven. You are all valued. You are all redeemed. You are all empowered by the same Spirit. When he gets to the gifts of the Spirit, I'm sure there were slaves there that are like, well, gifts of the Spirit must be for like the super religious Jews who know all about the Bible. I don't know anything. And Paul's constant communication about the gifts is that all of you have been given at least one gift. The Spirit empowers everyone. There's no respecter of person in the sense of saying, oh, you're a slave, or oh, you don't occupy the status, or oh, you have this external marking. The Spirit gives freely to empower all of God's people for mission. And that was very difficult for them to wrap their heads around because you can imagine in this culture, they would think things like, you know, to use a, some modern equivalencies, but surely the pastor is more valued and important to God than the plumber. But that just makes sense to me. Surely the wealthy are more valuable to God for his purposes than the poor. Surely the missionary holds a higher status in God's eye than the business owner or the stay-at-home parent. And Paul is saying, business owner, missionary, pastor, plumber, in terms of value and personhood, it doesn't matter. What matters? Keeping God's command. Living for God. It's a dangerous thing to presume the pastor is the most spiritual person in the room. It's a dangerous thing to attach spiritual wisdom and maturity with a title. Hopefully, they cohere. But the book of James talks a lot about being careful not to show favoritism to people. When you have a church service and the people who signal their wealth and prominence come in, you're like, oh, come, come out of these seats, yeah, yeah. And the people who are poor are kind of like, yeah, anywhere at the back is fine. That's right. But you guys do, oh, special seats right here, gold-plated names right there. Love you guys. Let's make sure the offering plate goes there first. Maybe it goes back and forth. No, Paul says, no. Everybody is valued and important. These status markers don't matter. The only thing that counts is keeping God's commands. That's what matters to God. And that's really revolutionary, not just for them, but probably for us too, because we get sucked into thinking that there are tiers of Christians. And yes, we would say God loves everyone, and 
faith in Christ, we're all going to heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But God really uses fill in the blank. God really uses these kind of people. And if I see myself as part of that group, that I'm swollen with pride. If I don't see myself as part of that group, I'm filled with insecurity. Quick interjection here. This is kind of a record scratch, but not because this is so important to talk about. This is one of the most damaging, devastating, destructive passages. Um, it would be probably top eight, nine, um, definitely top 10 in the New Testament that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, can anyone anticipate why this passage um, has a history of being used for exploitation and abusive mistreatment of people? Is there anything in this passage that would make you sort of say, oh, this, this is historically has been one of the most damaging passages in the New Testament. It doesn't have necessarily anything directly to do with what I'm saying. I'm just saying, look at the passage and what do you see? Condone slavery, encourage slaves to be obedient, and accept their lot in life, in verse 17, as an assignment from God. God has called you to this. And so, if you take verse 17, God's given you an assignment. Verse 21 and verse 24, you actually get a framework for justifying slavery and fatalism. I guess it's just... My lot, this is what I've, God's assigned to me. It must be God's will for me to be in this abusive situation. There must be something that God wants to teach me in being, a, being enslaved, being in this context where I'm continually absorbing abuse and being dehumanized and uh, not treated well. And those were the very ideas that were used to justify chattel slavery uh, in America's history and in, in many places all over the world, obviously. It was a dehumanization and that you've been born for this purpose. This is your destiny, is to be a slave. And sometimes that, that got localized to the slaves and sometimes that had an ethnic um, edge to it where it was like um, black people were created by God to be slaves. And they would use these passages to reinforce that idea. Now, already in the passage, you don't even have to look beyond this passage. Already in the passage, if people weren't motivated by uh, vile cruelty to justify their own exploitation and abuse, what's all, what is already in the passage that would, make, that would at least make you pause if someone said, oh, so this means that we can have slaves and slaves should be happy and content with their situation and like, yeah, this is the justification. What's, what's already in the passage, just this passage, that you could say it would raise a doubt? If you can gain your freedom, do it. Why? Because freedom is definitely better than being enslaved. So right away, Paul isn't saying, once a slave, always a slave, or in, not in this context, like once a servant, always a servant. Like, hey, strong family, you're indebted to the Marslins? Yeah, work it off. If you can gain your freedom, go for it. That's great. What else is there that would pop kind of the balloon of um, a justification for slavery? Totally. It's literally right there in the passage. Don't allow yourself to be a slave to a human being. And then, what, what's everyone called in the passage? 
brothers and sisters. So just in the passage itself, there's enough to hit the pause button on someone who would confidently say, oh, so this is what we need to teach our slaves to abide by, that they have been positioned here by God, and in a sense, they should be uh, happy for it. Now, if you just zoom out from 1 Corinthians 7, you've got this larger overarching biblical value of freedom from slavery. Name one story in the Old Testament that would reveal God's heart to liberate people who are enslaved into freedom and dignity under God. Oh, Hosea. I wasn't thinking about that one, though. That's clever. What's the, what's the big one? Exodus. The big one is, is the Exodus. God actually goes to people who are enslaved and says, I'm going to teach you how to walk upright. I'm going to turn you into a nation. I'm going to dignify you by giving you my law, my instruction. No other nation will be able to say, or look at how close the Israelites' gods are, God is to them. It's not like our gods that we just kind of throw these prayers out to the vacuum of reality. The Israelites' God walks with them. Christ offers freedom in the Gospels, in the New Testament writings, from the power and penalty of sin, which is often um, framed as enslavement. And then there's a whole book in the New Testament. It's not very big, but it's, there's a whole book that is explicitly, I would argue, uh, anti-slavery. You know the book I'm referring to? Search of the P. Philemon. Philemon is a book that Paul writes to a slave owner named Philemon, who's a Christian, whose slave Onesimus has run away. He's not a Christian. The slave has run away. He's connected with Paul. Paul has led Onesimus, the slave, to faith. And now Paul is writing a letter back to Philemon and saying, Philemon, I'm sending back your slave, but I'm sending him back as a brother. So he, if he, and Paul actually says, if he owes any debt, I'm sending him back to you. Because Paul says he was a slave, he needs to fulfill that. But I want you to not see him as a slave. I want you to know he's now a brother in Christ. And then Paul says, if he has any charges against them, put them on my account. I'll go into debt on his behalf. It's amazing. But it shows us the importance. And this is a case study as a passage. It shows us what's important. Or sorry, it shows us what can happen if we divorce verses from concentric circles of context. Right? You need to read the verse. What does the verse say? Okay, but what is the larger passage around it? What's going on here? What's happening in the chapter? What book is this a part of? When was this written? What's the historical context? These are all necessary. Then we have to pull back farther and say, what's, what are some of the major themes of the biblical story? Creation, fall, redemption, the gospel, uh, from enslavement to freedom. If you do those things, you're never going to end up with a statement as honestly ignorant as the Bible condones slavery. When, when people on TikTok or on social media or on Facebook say that, don't write this. But like that's the, tell me you don't understand the Bible without telling me you don't understand the Bible. Because if you pick verses, of course particular verses can be used. That's why it's so important for us to be very careful in our interpretation and application of the Bible, especially when it involves how we think other people should order and live their lives. And that has... Uh, had huge ramifications for discussions around 
the role of women in the church and slavery. But again, I just want us to see, you take this passage, which is actually one of the passages you could use to support the abolishment of slavery and was used. But before that, it was twisted and by omitting certain things and censoring it, rearranging it with other priorities that you see in scripture that speak directly to the issue of slavery, it was exploited. So we have to be careful how we handle God's word. Okay, three quick things to close. Are you guys okay? You got five more minutes? Legit five more minutes. Three things to close. How do you apply this in your life? How does this connect with us? So number one, let me just connect these dots. Your status, your social standing does not determine the quality of your Christian life. The grass is not greener on the other side. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? Oh, just this was different. If I just had more Bible knowledge, if I was a man, if I was richer, if I was had this background, or if I had a, a better family of origin, like God could actually use me. But because of my circumstances, I'm sort of a limited. No, that is a lie. You have everything you need right now to bless God and to bless other people. It doesn't mean there's no challenges. It just means you have everything you need right now to be a blessing to God and a blessing to other people around you. And that's what you should be busy doing. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in any circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. And contentment isn't being closed to improving your life. He says, hey, if you're a slave and you can gain your freedom, do it. That's a clear improvement. But what he's saying is contentment means avoiding obsessing over, if I could just get here, I could just make more money, if I could just have this kind of home, if I could just live here, if I could just have this kind of a marriage, if I could uh, switch my spouses, or if I could unload these responsibilities and just live, full, if I could just have this, then I could really move into a full and rich and fulfilling life with God. But Paul says, no, that's a lie. Remain where you are, stay where you are, redeem where you are. Because that contentment combat, uh, combats the pride and the insecurity that can come when we're believing that some external marker determines our worth and value before God and how God can use us. Number two, God's work in our lives is focused on our character formation, you know, our intentions and motives and devotion and the small ways that we try and bring honor to God and not about upward mobility. It, it is so tempting in a Western church to presume Spiritual direction goes the same way as socioeconomic um, escalation. That, that if we're upwardly mobile economically, that's a sign of blessing, right? I don't know if it's still around, but you know, back in the day, there used to be teasing because you know people would post all these amazing Instagram photos of their vacations and stuff, and the hashtag was like hashtag blessed. And it's like, are you kidding me? Wealth, God says, without me, wealth will be a curse. That is not, you know, but you don't see many like hashtag cursed, right? Because they're just showing you the highlights. They're not showing you the, the strife that can cause when you've clamored for it and haven't been content and not allowed God. But again, God would say, if you're rich, if you're poor, actually doesn't matter. If you're rich, what, what matters? Being devoted to me. If you're poor, what matters? Being devoted to me. You have everything you need to be a blessing to me and to other people right now. That's why we shouldn't show favoritism in the church. In 1 Samuel 16, God says, don't consider his appearance or height. And Samuel sees David's older brother and is like, oh, that's definitely like the next king of Israel for sure. And God says, no, don't consider his appearance or height. 
I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. People are obsessed with the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Jesus' strong condemnation against the Pharisees was that you guys are like a cup, and you wash the outside of the cup so that it's shiny and beautiful and clean and looks good. But the inside is full of greed and wickedness. And you're doing that because you think what really matters is what you're signaling to other people and signaling to God in a superficial way. Well, I came to church. I gave my tithe. I dress up. I have my Sunday best. No one else is doing that in my church. I pray three times a day. On the inside, it's just pride and greed and wickedness. Those external things are of no value, Paul is going to say in a few more chapters, when they're not done with love for God and love for other people in mind. And number three, for those of us who struggle with insecurity because of our background, different experiences, labels that we've placed on ourselves, labels that we've had placed on us, you need to know that in Christ you belong. You are a legitimate, full member of the family of God. You are not a second-class citizen. And that's important for everyone to hear because what that means is if you have high worldly status because you have things that the culture looks at and says, wow, they've made it. They're living the good life. That doesn't afford you any advantages in the kingdom of God. But your low worldly status, if people look at you, maybe you're even tempted to look at yourself and say, well, I'm just blank or I'm not this enough. That perception doesn't interfere with God's work in you and through you. So don't think too highly of yourself if you're particularly socially advantaged. Don't think too lowly of yourself if you're socially disadvantaged because the status and these externalities don't matter when it comes to being able to bless God and bless other people, to move into his mission, to be a contributing, fulfilled member of the body of Christ and to walk with God intimately. You've been forgiven by God. You are loved by God. You are gifted by God. You are empowered by God. And you can be used by God for a meaningful purpose and impact. Let's pray.